guest here and um, Shastri Yanamandraji. He is the grandson of uh, Pandit Kota Venkatachalam and um, he has been very close to works of Panditji and has been trying to bring Panditji's uh, body of work into the mainstream of Indic studies for some time now. He feels that Panditji's work in reconstructing Indic chronolo chronology coupled with the social, economic, cultural and political dimensions could provide the basis for the development of the grand, one grand narrative that we are all in search of. Um, so I um, uh, do not see him. I know he's listening to us, but Shastriji, if you, can you hear me? Yeah, there he is. Yes, um, yes. Thank you, Shastriji, um, for appearing on our screens. And uh, Thank you, thank you. That was yeah, a very generous so introduction. Uh, thank you, uh, Indic Academy, for this opportunity. Uh, thank you to the distinguished panelists. It's a privilege to share the stage with you. Uh, I wanted to ask a simple question. Uh, most people in India relate to um, big stories like the Mahabharata, big historical figures like Adi Shankaracharya, and you have mentioned a couple of those. Uh, over the millennia, could you please show some connections over time, let's say from the Mahabharata days or, or uh, after that in the uh, medieval ages, maybe uh, towards Adi Shankara as well. This would help uh, um, un people understand the civilizational continuity and integrity over the millennia. Um, Dr. Kak, before you begin, I just want to give one house rule before you come in the answers. All our um, uh, listeners and viewers, I believe we have a lot of them here. Uh, at this point, you can begin typing your questions and uh, the team at Indic Academy is going to curate those questions and we will try to answer every question that we get. So at this point, you can begin writing your questions and sending them to us. And uh, over to you, Dr. Yeah, Thank you, Shastriji. A very good question about uh, the connections that exist in uh, India's mainland between Kashmir and rest of India. And there are so many of them. In, in fact, the greatest Kashmiri scholar, Abhinav Gupta's, his own grandfather or great-grandfather came from Kannauj and settled in Kashmir. So there are people moving back and forth in all of India for centuries. And even though, you know, there were regions which uh, had uh, specific languages. Uh, so this is um, uh, one fact. The other is that uh, you also have uh, uh, connections in ideas that arose through Agamas. Before that, of course, you had Puranas, which are encyclopedias, and you had uh, the other uh, Tikas and Bhashyas on the Sutra and the uh, Upanishadic uh, literature uh, being created all over the country. But um, uh, certainly you had other texts also which were pan-Indic. And one of the greatest of them um, is uh, Yoga Vasishta, which again scholars believe arose in Kashmir. And Yoga Vasishta is the second largest book in Sanskrit next to Mahabharata with about 100,000 shlokas. You have Yoga Vasishta at about 29,000 shlokas. And then you have Ramayana at 24,000 shlokas. So Yoga Vasishta is the supreme book on Advaitic view of reality, 
narrated in terms of stories, uh, which many people consider a scripture in itself, but one can also view it as perhaps the greatest novel ever written. And through its stories, it communicates the most subtle ideas related not only to the external reality, but also the inner space that is within each one of us. Um, now, another uh, point before I forget, which I want to emphasize, uh, the uh, Ji spoke about the 36 tattvas, uh, in which Shaiva um, Darshan uh, of Kashmir is different from Sankhya. Sankhya is 25 tattvas. Um, uh, we can see the antecedents of this in the Vedic literature itself. You have this great dialogue in Brihat Aranyak Upanishad between Yagya um, uh, and the student who comes to him and he says, how many gods are there? How many devas are there? And he says, 33. Uh, and then he says, what are these 33? And he says, uh, you know, you have eight vasus, you have 12 adityas, and you have 11 rudras. The 11 rudras, which the Vedic uh, sages speak about, are the 11 phases or aspects of consciousness in their veiling and in their expressive form. It's these 11 uh, rudras which were added on in their own unique way to the 25 tattvas of Sankhya, which give us the 36 tattvas of Shaiva Darshan or Kashmir Shaivism. So all along in history, as far back as you go, there is this amazing interplay and, and, and as Kashmir Shaivism as being a part of the general tantric world, the tantras themselves, even though they see uh, or it's viewed that they arose of the agamas, but tantric scholars themselves say, well, it's actually all goes back to the Vedas or you go to Shvetashvatar Upanishad where a similar classification is done. And really there is no distinction that Tantra or the Shaiva tradition is really no different. Uh, it's just emphasizing certain aspects of the same big Vedic river. So all connections, all throughout. Thank you, Dr. Kak. Interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, we have questions um, pouring in. And the first question, and very interesting questions. Some of them are very interesting, but I'll, I'll go, we'll answer every question. The first question is for um, Dr. Ka, and this is from Shehjar Safaya from Raleigh, North Carolina. Thank you, Shehjar. And her question is, did the Kashmiri Hindu rulers have family relations with Hindu Shahi rulers of present day Afghanistan? And could you tell us more about the role of Lalita Ditya, King Lalita Ditya, in countering caliphate armies? So two questions. Uh, one, uh, do they have, do Kashmiri Hindu rulers have any relations with Hindu Shahi rulers of Afghanistan? And what was the role of Lalita Ditya in countering caliphate armies? Okay, quickly, uh, certainly they had uh, relations, they had uh, marital relations. In fact, the great queen Vidda uh, was, I believe, a Shahi princess. Uh, so there was, uh, there were all these connections. Now, the, the great uh, Lalita Ditya of the Karkot dynasty, uh, historians accept that in his uh, campaigns to conquer the world as he saw it, he also had a campaign, he did a campaign to Central Asia, to Xinjiang, and he conquered that as well. 
This is when the Tang Empire had weakened. But as I mentioned in my opening remarks, uh, the Indics uh, as Buddhists uh, with, with a lot of uh, um, Hindu divinities also thrown in because you also see Shiva as one of the very important deities all over Central Asia for a long, long time. Uh, Shiva and Uma and Narayana and even Krishna. So you had uh, the whole Xinjiang as a, a cultural area where people use Indic languages, and there were also Shaka languages in Central Asia. And you had Buddhism, but you also had, had uh, what we would now call Hinduism or Sanatan Dharma or Shaivism, which were a part of the general cultural uh, river in those countries. And uh, certainly Lalitha Ditya's campaign to uh, Central Asia uh, must have been partly motivated by actual you know, desire to be connected to people who, in my own phrase, uh, was the twin of Kashmir, that Central Asia was a geographically or culturally twin of Kashmir. Okay. Thank you so much. And uh, the second question that I have is, um, Second, very interesting question, and this is for um, Virindraji. Uh, Virindraji, if you could unmute yourself. Um, this is from Amit Suchi in Melbourne, Australia. And his question is, did the white Huns, the nomadic people, Huns, the nomadic people who lived in Central Asia, did they, when they invaded Indian subcontinent, did they get influenced by uh, Kashmir Shaiva, Shaiva traditions? Because according to him, many of the Huns seem to be Shaivites by the time they reached Indian, Indian subcontinent. Actually, I have seen this on the on my WhatsApp also this message mm -hmm. because I have the literature of Kashmir Shaivism, the historical aspect. It is very important. Let us talk of Kumar Jiva, the fourth century, who was a whose father also was a uh, scholar of Agamas, and he was creator of you know what is called Lotus Sutra today, Shobhagai movement. And there are a lot of Shaivites that influenced Buddhism, but that is a source of Mahayana Buddhism. And uh, white hunts, they're all uh, white hunt. Uh, that's the famous was Hune song. When he came to main India, he stayed for a couple of time, good time in Kashmir. And he had a great impact on the Kashmir Tantras, like Malini Tantra. This Krama system was very popular. It was with uh, subtle and profound systems. They, he had a deep impact. This is what I understand. And of course, his purpose was to translate the Buddhist uh, scriptures into the uh, local language. He took the scriptures from India and to understand the Buddhist scriptures. And he found a, a different knowledge in Kashmir altogether. And definitely there was an, a good impact. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that answer. This is a very interesting question and I would like both of you to take it and uh, probably in just one sentence an answer can be given and I'll try to answer it myself as well because there can be multiple answers to this. Anna Solis, she's a journalist and she's asking if Kashmir is the crown of India, 
what is the jewel in the crown? Dr. Clark, you want to take this? If Kashmir is the crown of India, what is the jewel in the crown? Okay, oh, maybe the question is, what is it that makes Kashmiri, a Kashmiri approach to civilization or culture unique? I think it is a special eye. It's an aesthetic eye. It's an ability to balance opposites. Uh, and that's what shows up uh, in literature, in uh, sculpture, in music, in a variety of fields that emerged out of Kashmir. It's really a sense of beauty. And uh, the whole discipline of Dhani, the aesthetic theory of Dhani, that it's not cleverness that uh, makes for the value of literature or a painting, because you can also be clever. You can try to impress somebody through your cleverness, but it's your ability to communicate something infinite and transcendent so that the viewer or the listener doesn't push back. If you try to teach somebody down, the person would push back. But if you indirectly communicate a, a, a resonance which inspired you and you're trying to get the viewer connected to the same resonance, that is when you have found the secret to uh, what is of beauty, what is beauty, what is uh, aesthetically valuable. I think it's that, uh, it's that eye which makes uh, the Kashmiri approach to culture and literature unique. I know. Um, I would interpret this question a little differently because you've uh, already answered it the right way, I would say. But if the question was, if Kashmir is the crown of India, then who is the jewel in that crown? I would say Abhinav Gupta, because I um, think at one point he was, the, to this day, I think he's Kashmir's greatest export to the rest of the world. So um, I would, it, it's just, as I said, there are no right answers to this, but um, quickly, uh, Virendraji, how would you answer that if I, Kashmir- I will agree with you. Abhinav Gupta is the jewel of Kashmir, the jewel of Abhinav Gupta. You would agree with that? He's uh, the, jewel will be Abhinav Gupta, yes, yes, yes. You would agree with that. There's another question, and for this, I would go to Dr. Kark again. He says, and uh, this question is being asked by Vivek Gupta. The question is, how can we share this history of Kashmir that we have revealed today, that we've been talking about today, with the colonized people of present day Pakistan, especially Northern Pakistan, who are Muslims now? I don't know if the colonized is the right word to use in the correct context, but we get what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, how can we share this history of Kashmir with present day Pakistanis because um, a lot of them do not accept this history. They do not accept their own history. They do not accept that they have anything to do with the subcontinent. They think that on um, uh, 14th August 1947, uh, you know, a blood transfusion happened and they all got Arab blood for some reason. They do not even um, accept that they are from the subcontinent. But be as that may be, how would you think, what is the way, if there were some people who were interested, how should we share this history of Kashmir with Pakistan? I think uh, it's the general challenge related to uh, how do you deal with the past? Because many places in the world have a problem with uh, their own history. 
And I suppose now we have technology, we have decentralized technology uh, of the internet, for example, and other media, which make it possible to present alternative and uh, true uh, narratives uh, to all people. And I believe uh, that every human being wants to know the truth. And if an attempt is made to present the truth in a non-threatening way, uh, people would come to it. And if, for example, uh, people were to know that uh, all of modern science is based on quantum mechanics, or from quantum mechanics you get chemistry, from chemistry you get biology, from biology you get brain science, and the creator of quantum mechanics, the Austrian named Erwin Schrodinger, himself was inspired, in his own autobiography he mentions it, he was inspired by Vedanta, by the Upanishadic Mahavakya, as he claims in his autobiography, I am Atman Brahma, that quantum mechanics is consistent with Vedanta. If people were to know it, perhaps they would become curious and would want to find out what is this Vedanta after all, or what is this Kashmir Shaivism, and maybe our ancestors were not all uh, you know, seized of darkness. Maybe there was something. So you've got to open some windows. And I think we should take the high road, present the story as, as often as we can, in as non-threatening a way as we can. And I'm sure eventually everybody loves beauty. Everybody loves knowledge. Every human being, even, even animals, you know, a dog wants to see a sunrise or a sunset. Every human, every sentient being wants beauty. So we have to keep on trying. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, the next question is for Virendraji. Um, uh, Virendraji, this is Damini from New Jersey. Her question is, what is the main differentiation in Kashmir Shaivism that makes it different from other Shaivite philosophies? Maybe one or two main differentiators. All this while you were telling us what is common between all of them, but what is the main differentiator? If you could give us one or two between Kashmir Shaivism and other uh, Shaivite philosophies in the rest of India. In fact, I described the uh, four broad categories of Shaivism. Let me talk of the main differences. Shaivism, Kashmir Shaivism based on totality. Everything is divine. Good is divine, bad is divine, everything is divine. In fact, there is a negative, no negative word. That's I would say, Maya is Shumai. Maya is Shumai. Maya is created by Lord Shiva himself to run the play of world. So it is not to be that uh, Jagat Mithya, no uh, Brahman Satya Jagat Mithya. No, Jagat is also Shiva and Brahman is also Shiva. So this uh, Kashmir Shaism speaks on totality. Second, that's why Kashmir Shaijam, we say, is divine life and material life is but one. That is the first message. Second message is that we can realize the God in this very life and now. A very simple process that from the relief of action, the relief of inner, uh, go inwards and connect to the divine. It's based on 100% divine grace. We can get transformed only by divine grace. So I'll say two things that uh, Maya is Shumai and second is Anugrah. It's only through Anugrah we can realize the God. That's the basic uh, emphasis of Kashmir Shaivism. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, 
Yeah, Anugrah is such a beautiful word because even in Kashmiri, we use the word Anugrah quite a bit. Here. And my grandmother would often tell me, uh, often use that word Anugrah and she would say for anything I would do, for, if I would go out for an exam, if I would go out for to do anything, well, she would say that you need God's Anugrah. So I guess she was getting it from um, what Virendraji said. Uh, Dr. Kark, you wanted to add something? Just briefly, um, just to uh, add uh, to what Virendraji mentioned, uh, the major difference is that uh, in uh, the Kashmiri view, this uh, embodied world is also an embodiment of the, the world, the actual world is also an embodiment of Shiva. And therefore, this is not to be taken as something that you want to run away from. In other words, Kashmir Shaivism is an approach, is a Vedantic approach, Advaitic Vedantic approach, where you can participate fully in the world as it is. You don't have to leave the world and become a sannyasi to find the deepest truths. You can find the deepest truths while living in the world. So I think this is the major distinction. I don't think it is a very deep distinction. It's a distinction uh, more of style, more in an attitude that look, uh, just as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, that you can't run away from karma. You can't run away from action. So you cannot, even if you went to the forest, you can't run away from it. So you better enjoy the beauty. The world itself is beautiful. It is an expression of the goddess and you can participate in it and be uh, also informed of the deepest insights by it. <coughs> Interesting. Um, I have another question from Vijay Kumar Dar. His question is, and Dr. Kark, since you're here, you may um, try to answer that. Um, it's a small, it's a um, short, pithy question, but I don't know if the answer will be as short. The question is, do you believe that Kashmir will ever rediscover its ancient civilization? Oh, absolutely. I am a optimist. I think that the world over the next uh, few decades is going to change much more and all the changes that have occurred in the past few centuries for a variety of reasons, partly uh, due to technology, AI, there are going to be tremendously disruptive forces at work. And uh, the coronavirus is just opening you. And uh, this, of course, nobody was expecting, but there are other things that are going to happen. And in that disruption, during that disruption, people would then want to ask questions about meaning and who they are and want to be connected back to their history. And I think that'll change. I think people all over, including people in Central Asia or in Pakistan or in Afghanistan and other countries would want to revisit and embrace all the beautiful that was a part of their own history. And certainly not, uh, and reject what was not beautiful because every society has a mix of this and that. But I think all what we've been talking about is truly beautiful. It's beautiful not only at the regional level of Kashmir and India, it's beautiful at a universal level. And that's what almost everybody, uh, discerning people acknowledge that. I think people will want to and will get connected. 
um, we have a lot of questions coming in. So we will have to keep our um, answers short so that we can um, take more questions. Uh, Virendraji, here is a question for you. Uh, the question is, Sharda Pete, as you know, um, had the presence of, and this is asked by Shashank Davangire, his question is, Sharda Pete, which evidently had scholars from all parts of South Asia, did it, it did that help in spread of Kashmir Shaivism across India, or was it more like exchange of ideas where the ideas from other parts of India also uh, influenced Kashmir Shaivism? So we've talked about how Kashmir Shaivism influenced other parts of, you know, Indic thought, but did the thoughts that were coming from other parts of South Asia also influence Kashmir Shaivism and change it? We'll have to keep our answer really short and uh, move on to other, if you could please. Actually, scholars would learn the great wisdom in Banaras. There was a learning center. From Banaras, they could go to Sharda Peet for subtle realization, for the higher sadhanas, not only of Kashmir Shaivism, uh, Agamas, even Buddhist scholars also were there. So it was an interaction. We can say it was a center of interaction also. And that's a Sharda Peet was called the highest learning because you will be taught practical sadhana in Sharda Peet. Yeah. So uh, the, uh, the next question, and I'll, since you're here, I'll ask you this quick question. It's from Shori Banai. He says, what are the remaining manifestations of Kashmir Shaivism in today, in today's valley? Are there any manifestations left? How do we practice Kashmir Shaivism today in um, Kashmir Valley? Now that we are not in Kashmir, but Kashmir it doesn't matter because you know I do interact with uh, who are these uh, practitioners in Kashmir Shaivism also. Mm -hmm. The great uh, practitioner Pranath Kohlji. I wish people take advantage of his with his presence. Then Prabhaji is too old, and we you can always practice Kashmir Shaivism. Everybody is very welcome to Kashmir Shaivism. We have to go. There are basic principles which is announced by Shu Sutras. Shu Sutras gives you the guidance how to practice Kashmir Shaivism and Vigyana Bhaira meditation, Vigyana Bhaira Tantra. There are subtle techniques. Everything is available. You should only have a desire. Even but are there gurus available? Are there gurus available right now to teach Kashmir Shaivism right now? That was the question. Are there any gurus available? Guru, <laughs> gurus within you. But of course, their number is very less now. Prabhaji also used to give Diksha. Yeah. And uh, Pranath Kohlji, there are people all over the world, they are coming in summer. If you see in Ishwar Ashram, summer world, I don't know this year, maybe because of Corona people, there's no, not much of it. But summer people are coming to, they sit in the Ishwar Ashram also, they learn Kashmir Shaivism. It is growing, and it's growing day by day. I see a lot of yeah. these things. Yeah. By um, the way, you know, we also, we also teach the practical side. That, that okay. is also one thing, how you, we teach practical, we call it level one program, level two, like that. We teach okay. basic scriptures. Life and material life is one. Basically, we impart Tattva Gyan and Shu Sutra and Vigyan Bhairav. We can start with that. So, anybody and, who is interested. Um, uh, another question, um, Dr. Kak, this question is, uh, I'll uh, put it to you. It says, it's a cheeky question. It says, we did not quite resolve the original question raised by Sunanda. How far in history do we go to claim a plot of land? Kashmir was Muslim dominated before 1947, perhaps uh, since 1600s. 
what gives us the legitimacy to go back beyond 1600? I don't think he has the dates right. But um, his question is, what gives us the legitimacy to go to pre-Islamic period? Should we even go to it? Well, um, I, I don't know what that question really means, but uh, certainly Kashmir um, has remained connected to ups and downs of its history. There was a continuous, uh, um, you know, cycle of scholarship and manuscripts and scholars working on it. And um, even Kashmir Islam, the Rishi Islam, for example, uh, the Nanda Rishi, for example, one of the very leading lights, they were inspired by um, Maleshwari and Shaivism. So they were trying in the general public. In fact, one could say that politics in Kashmir, the um, Islamic politics in Kashmir before 47 was an interplay of three groups. One was the general Islamic population, which remained connected to their own traditions, which had elements of their pre-Islamic past. And then there were the orthodox uh, mullahs in, uh, in, uh, in, in Srinagar. And then uh, there were uh, some people who wanted to be more uh, open and be leftist and so on. So there was an interplay. And perhaps this interplay would have resolved itself and found a healthy expression. But uh, sadly, Kashmir became uh, a prisoner to this uh, politics which was used by Pakistan to destabilize India, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s. And therefore, there were forces which were much bigger than that of Kashmir. For example, I can tell you, when I was growing up in Kashmir, Kashmir was the safest place anywhere one can imagine. Uh, I remember when I was a young kid in Kulgam, uh, I remember my father telling me one day that, look, in the last year, in the whole of the Kashmir Valley, there was just one murder. And there was also a murder of passion. But things have changed greatly because outside forces have come in which have destabilized Kashmir as outside forces have destabilized many other parts of the world. And maybe that is a part of this process of globalization. Uh, but now there are new forces at work, which I alluded to, alluded to in the beginning, uh, just a short while ago, that disruptive forces will perhaps turn the clock backwards and people would want to be connected to their own traditions in a more healthy way. And possibly that would be a resolution to this problem and answer to your question at the local level. Okay. Um, and maybe uh, Virendraji and you, between the two of you, um, one of you can decide uh, how to answer this and who can answer this. Can you, and quickly, can you share the contribution of Kashmir to Yuddha Tantra, war strategies? Is there any contribution of Kashmir to Yuddha Tantra or war strategies? Either of you can take that question. So, Bhaji, you start. Oh, well, Yuddha Tantra. Uh, <laughs> no, because I have seen from Andhra scholars, Andhra and other things, Dhanur uh, Vidya and other things. I have attended some sessions. Well, uh, there obviously was a lot of theorizing, and I personally am not knowledgeable, but these uh, uh, texts often speak in very general terms, uh, and uh, then there were further 
um, commentaries on it, which is where they became of uh, greater value. For example, as you know, there is this famous uh, episode in the Mahabharata of this Chakravyuhu, where uh, Abhimanyu, I suppose, he goes in and he doesn't know how to get out. So there are all of these theorizing, but I personally am not knowledgeable about all of them. Okay. Um, and here is, and I'm going to ask both of you to give me two books because there the question is, please do suggest to us the writers we could read to understand more about history of Kashmir, for example, Abhinav book. So if you can give me two sources or two books that you recommend, Subhaji, and then Virendraji, if you can give me two books that you recommend, and then we can um, uh, move from that. What are, uh, if somebody is starting to read about history of Kashmir, what should they go back to primary sources? Well, there is, of course, Raj Tarangani, the, um, the big history book, which is written about a thousand years ago. But I would also recommend, and there are very good translations available, the Yoga Vasishta, because in my view, that is the greatest book, greatest novel ever written. I would recommend Yoga Vasishta. It is very eminently readable. And then people who are interested in Kashmir Shaivism, there are all these translations which were done by Jaidev Singh uh, for many uh, decades, published by Motilal Banarsidas, and I'm sure those books are still available. And there's a lot of stuff which is probably freely available on the internet. Yeah. Uh, ji, two books that you I would will recommend two books. Of course, okay. is a wonderful book, History of Kashmir from Mahabharata Starts Ages. I will recommend two books. Number one book is Abhinava Gupta by Dr. K.C. Pandey. It, is, it was out of print. I also requested the publishers, please publish it. It is now available. Chokamba Sanskrit Pratishtan. Abhinava Gupta's history. It was a wonderful knowledge of Tantra in English language. We are lucky to read in English language about the Kaula Tantra, Krama system, historical aspect. It gives wonderful book, thick book. And then for the guidance of Kashmir Shaivism. Very popular book from Swami Lakhmanju. Kashmir Shaivism, The Secret Supreme. These are all available books. Okay. Uh, Jayavad Singh learned with uh, Swami Lakhmanju. Now, luckily, we got direct books from Swami Lakhmanju. There are many books, Vijayan Bhairav, Shiv Sutra himself, from Lakhmanju. But these are very easy books. You will get great interest in Kashmir Shaivism by reading this book, Secret okay. So I, saw me, I, have, uh, I have time. I'm only going to be able to take two questions. And after this, I'm going to go to uh, Sri Harikiran uh, Vadlamaniji, who is with us here. And I'll introduce him in a bit. Um, so after two questions, I'll go to him. Uh, this is, um, uh, Swaji, if you can answer that. Teji Singh from India, America today. And she says she's an Orthodox Christian, FYI. We really don't need to know that, Teji. Um, uh, you know, that does not matter here. It's just a question. She's saying, Kashmiri Pandits came to ask help from ninth Sikh Guru, Teg Bahadur, um, for help so that they could stop Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb um, from converting them to Islam. Uh, the guru was tortured and beheaded, but it stopped that um, conversion. So Teji, I, I apologize, Teji is a he, I apologize, I uh, was not sure about that. Uh, so Teji is asking, uh, why no mention? I'm not sure where he wants a mention of this, but maybe he's saying that, why are history books not 
why do they not talk about it's just a folklore but why do history books not talk about this incident i suppose this is the question uh, subhashi if you can answer that okay the answer is um, depends upon what kind of a history book you go to um, often uh, comprehensive books do mention it but generally now uh, leftist historians don't want to talk about it because they say uh, incidents such as this uh, represent a communalization of india's history so we're going to leave this out because this pits one community against another so i think it's uh, leftist historians who would eschew any discussion of it but uh, older texts and certainly Kashmiri scholars themselves who have written histories of their own community do always mention it. Thank Just, you. Uh, I, um, yeah. I wanted to add. Please, please go ahead. Please, uh, please. Uh, on this, you know, the Kashmiri Pandit who accompanied Tej Bahadur and he joined Guru Gobind Singh and he gave Shahidi. He became this Sikh warrior and he died for the Sikh cause also. That the people are aware. It's very popularly known that. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that, Virendraji. Thank you for ah, letting yes, me know. I personally wasn't um, aware of that. Um, I will just take one more question because I have to go to Harikiranji after this. And this question is from Mohan Gatge, and um, it's a. Um, I'm not quite sure what he means. He says, in what time period of history? The word is dilution. I'm not sure if that is the right word. The dilution of Kashmiri Hindus happened. And who is responsible, both religious and political leadership? I think what Mohanji is trying to say is that when did the dwindling of population happen? At one point, obviously, Kashmiri Hindus were about 100% about of the population. When did the dwindling happen and the kind of dwindling that has happened in Kashmir that a lot of people want to call it genocide because from 100% uh, to the time the seventh exodus happened in 1989, there were just five to 7% Kashmiri Hindus left. So um, I suppose if you can both answer, uh, Subhaji, you first, that when did this serious dwindling of numbers happen. It couldn't just be conversions. A lot many of them must have been killed as well. And when did that happen? When was when was the time period? What was the time period that was that saw the most persecution of Kashmiri Hindus? Well, as you said, seventh, this is the seventh major episode. The yeah. very first major episode is supposed to have been Sikandar Butchikan. Butchikan meaning iconoclast. But from Bud because uh, when Central Asia and uh, Northwest India became Islamicized, uh, in many parts of that, uh, those regions were the Buddhists, and the Buddhists in their monasteries had big images of the Buddha. So the destruction of the images was called Buddha, to destroy Buddha. Buddha also means an image, therefore. So it was, I think, the grandson of the very first guy who seized power from the very last queen of Kashmir. Shamir. And, uh, yeah, and he did a general massacre or genocide. And according to popular belief, only 11 families were left. And when I was growing up, my uh, father and mother and grandparents used to tell me that the cocks were one of those 11 that we have survived. So I must also work as hard 
to survive in the decades ahead. Uh, but there have been other episodes like this. And, uh, you know, a community which, is, which has gone through a similar uh, history of the Yazidis in uh, northern Iraq, who claim to have gone, undergone, I don't know, 20, 30, 50 such, uh, such episodes, including one very recently, eight to 10 years ago. So, so a long period. Now, after the very first extremely serious episode, the son of that king was a fellow called Zanul Abdin, who was, uh, whose life was restored by his Hindu uh, Vadya. So after that, he became kind and he said, you can come back in. And a lot of people did stream back in, people who fled. Um, but, but, you know, the population remained very, very low and it was about five, 6% in 1990, but now it's almost gone to 0%. There are just a few thousand people left in the entire valley and there's also under tremendous pressure. Yeah, I um, uh, always, um, uh, you know, struggle with the word genocide when it is used for my people. And um, I, I, I get, I, I somehow don't want to use it. Um, I, and a lot of people do use it, but I don't know what more is a genocide than a population going from 100% to near 0% in the valley now. I don't know. Um, if you know a cultural genocide, a numerical genocide, but I, I just get very nervous about. I get goosebumps when I even talk about that word. Um, but we are running out short of time, and this is this last question that I'm going to. That we have covered already, and uh, so I'm just going to give her a brief answer myself. This is Ravli Rapaka. She says, "What changed after the Muslim invasion in Kashmir?" Ravli, the what changed after Muslim invasion was seven exoduses of. Um, uh, original aboriginal people of Kashmir, Kashmiri Hindus, Kashmiri pundits. So um, systematic persecution happened. And the, re the fact that we are talking here today and trying to reminisce who we are is the result of um, the Islamic invasion uh, in Kashmir. So a lot has happened. The character has changed. I think if there is anything that we need to take away from this conversation is that how can societies change when demographics are reduced? If there is one thing that we can go back and think about and in a very scholarly way that how, what happens to the societies when numbers are completely reduced like this over a period of 400, 500 years. As Hindus, we understand that time is cyclical and 400, 500 years means nothing. It is just you know, a cycle of time. But in 400, 500 years, here we all are talking about, even I don't know a lot of who I, you know, about who I am and I learned from these scholars today, um, but I can assure you that there are many of us who don't at all understand who we are, where we have come from, because we have been uprooted so much, um, seven times at least, and we are hopefully uh, hoping to go back never to be uprooted again. We don't know when that will happen. Um, but that, with that, I'll end this question answer session. We have already gone, uh, we have a lot of questions. And before this uh, started, we had already said, in fact, Subhashri had um, 
suggested this and I would suggest this to the Indic Academy members that this was a very broad overview of history of Kashmir and Kashmiri Hindus. So um, taking from it a few strands, what Virendraji and uh, Subhashji said today, we can maybe have a few more webinars if people are still interested and take a few specialized um, you know, topics and talk about those. And the idea today was to give you a broad overview and we can take it from here if the, and that is a suggestion from me to Indic Academy uh, members. Subhaji, if you want to make a last comment because we'll have to end in a little bit. Very brief comment on Hari Kiranji's first message on that book by William Sage uh, called Brahma's Curse. You know, this is all cherry picking. You can take one the story and you can pick this and that and people like William Slade would like nothing more than people getting worked up because any publicity is good publicity. If I were you, I would totally ignore this because I've seen other stuff by people which is a very poor quality. Uh, certainly uh, maybe one person can take a look, a hard look at it, but I wouldn't want to give it any publicity in my mind. Yeah. Be, be I, I'm looking for uh, at least a, a rebuttal uh, kind of a thing. It, it looked very, very, I mean, when you read that, your blood boils saying that, look, how can you, somebody even, you know, have this kind of a perspective? Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Subhash Kakti, we, you know that they are at it. They're, they're, they're extraordinarily creative. They're very creative, innovative. Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I wrote an essay on it for medium.com called The Scandal of Indology. And you look at uh, some of the stuff which is so bad and there is a clear uh, ideological position that Indians cannot speak for themselves. It's we who shall speak for them. They don't have any authority to interpret their own books. I think the battle has been joined and I think this is a sideshow and probably we did not give any importance to it, but uh, the stakes are quite high. And, you know, there's this talk right now in the US, um, BLM, Black Lives Movement of white privilege. There is one area in the entire world where there is white privilege. It's Europeans and Americans telling Indians that you don't have the right to interpret your history. <laughs> You don't have the right to interpret what the Vedas are and what are the other texts are. And in that article, you'll see quotes by professors saying that we want to freeze out Indian scholars. So if that is what the situation is, I think we have to know what the uh, parameters of this battle are. And we have to now use Yuddha Tantra properly. We have to find out what these Yuddha Tantras are and find out how this battle should be fought. Yeah. Thank you so much, um, Subhaji. That is actually a positive note to end this on. And um, Vrindaji, thank you so much. You joined us from India. And I mean, this, is, this must be early morning for you. But thank you so much for joining us and enlightening us on um, so many interesting issues. I personally learned a lot today. Thank you so much. Uh, Subhaji, always a pleasure to listen to you. Always, it's, it's always enlightening. It's always, I always take away so much every time 
I read um, your writing or I hear you um, talk. It is always a pleasure. And uh, thank you to Indic Academy for giving us this opportunity to talk about ourselves. And if there is, and thank you to all the viewers and listeners and everyone who asked questions. I tried to put in as many questions as possible. I hope your questions were answered. Thank you so much for being with us today. And with this, I thank you all. Namaste. Namaskar.